the Hamlet Podcast. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth with me, your host, Connor Hanrity. This week, we pick up directly on the point of the bloody captain's last bit of news. We've already heard the grim description of Macbeth slicing his way to victory over the merciless MacDonald, and we've just heard the bad news that the Norwegian horde is surveying the battlefield and poised to launch a fresh attack with renewed forces. King Duncan has asked if this worried his two captains, Banquo and Macbeth, and the messenger replies, Yes, a sparrow's eagles or the hare the lion. If I say sooth, I must report, they were as cannons overcharged with double cracks, so they doubly redoubled strokes upon the foe, except they meant to bathe in reeking wounds or memorise another Golgotha I cannot tell. But I am faint, my gashes cry for help. Even despite all of his wounds, the sergeant answers almost ironically. The great heroes Banquo and Macbeth are not at all phased by the Norwegians. They're not bothered by them, no more than a sparrow would worry an eagle, or a hare might a lion. Already we've had imagery linking Macbeth to valour, and now here the captains are being compared to lions and eagles. It's great imagery for heroes. The captain continues, If I say sooth, to tell you the truth, they fought like cannons loaded with twice the usual amount of ammunition. These men were twice as effective or powerful as usual. They sound almost like they're going berserk, since, after all, if you double-stuff a cannon, it will probably explode. Now we get the captain's most interesting line. So they doubly redoubled strokes upon the foe. This doesn't fit the metre at all. It sticks out like a sore thumb. And if you know the play you'll know that double-double is a phrase we'll hear in a much more famous version later on. And here it is a little harbinger of how things being doubled and echoed and multiplied and reflected will resonate throughout this play. As a character note, it's also perhaps that the captain is running out of steam, and so his speech is becoming quite irregular. Macbeth and Banquo are described like unholy terrors attacking the enemy with exponentially aggressive force. The captain can't tell whether they're just trying to bathe themselves in blood from the steaming, reeking wounds that they're carving, or to memorise another Golgotha. Golgotha is the Aramaic word for skull, and as a place it's better known as Calvary, the location outside the city of Jerusalem where Christ was crucified. While Calvary might have a connotation too religious, Golgotha somehow sounds barbarous and bloody, which is absolutely the mood. There's a sense of repeated execution here. The captain has to interrupt himself. I am faint, he says, my gashes cry for help. He has enough open wounds that they are like mouths crying for medical attention. There are echoes here from Richard II both doubly redoubling and Golgotha, the only other time Shakespeare used the word. To the attentive ear, then, these might give a sense that there is a battle underway for succession in this kingdom. And the image of wounds like mouths with ruby lips also occurs in Julius Caesar, in which a leader is stabbed to death in a shocking scene. This messenger gives us an amazing quantity of information in his brief appearance, and the king is likewise impressed. He says, 
So well thy words become thee as thy wounds, they smack of honour both. Go, get him surgeons. Duncan is saying that the captain's news and his battle scars become him equally, and they both give him great honour. And happily, his message delivered, the poor man is sent off for medical attention. But things keep moving and more people arrive. So the king asks, who comes here? And Malcolm tells him, the worthy Thane of Ross. And the stage directions will often say that Ross will enter with Angus. Since we are in Scotland, we have a great many Thanes. And a Thane is something like a Scottish equivalent of an earl. If you've managed to keep up with any stories like Game of Thrones with all their made-up titles and language and names and so on, this should be no problem for you. But one of the great challenges of this play is keeping up with the various secondary characters, because they also have a lot going on. We have Angus, Ross, Lennox, Menteith and Caithness. They're all named characters, all thanes of various places in Scotland. And we will be keeping a close eye on them. As Ross is arriving, Lennox, one of Duncan's attendant lords, describes him. He says, What a haste looks through his eyes. So should he look that seems to speak things strange. Lennox is speaking at a remarkably different pace to that of the injured captain. He's an observer, clearly. His description builds our anticipation for what Ross might have to say. He's describing a man with a strange haste in his eyes and a foreboding appearance to match his alarming news. So should he look that seems to speak things strange. Shakespeare's just teasing us, really. So Ross speaks and greets Duncan. God save the king. And Duncan responds with a question. Whence camest thou, worthy Thane? So the king wants to know where Ross has come to us from. Duncan is quite a lovely king. He has compliments for everyone. Ross is another worthy Thane, and it's a little more than just general politeness. He really is this nice. And Ross, with all that haste in his eyes, completes the king's line of verse. From Fife, great king, where the Norwegian banners flout the sky and fan our people cold. Norway himself, with terrible numbers, assisted by that most disloyal traitor, the Thane of Cawdor, began a dismal conflict till that Bellona's bridegroom, lapped in proof, confronted him with self-comparisons, point against point, rebellious arm against arm, curbing his lavish spirit. And, to conclude, the victory fell on us. This is another messenger speech, and indeed, Ross will serve as a messenger and a go-between throughout the play although this is one of the last times that he's going to deliver any good news. He's come from Fife, which is another fandom in the east of the country. The Thane of Fife is Macduff, who will be a key character in this play. At the battlefield there, the Norwegian army's numbers were so great that their banners mocked the sky, and they flapped the air so much that they fanned the Scottish people cold. The King of Norway himself was there, with terrible numbers, he says, and had help from a Scottish traitor, the Thane of Cawdor. So began a dismal conflict, until Macduff showed up to fight him and confronted him with self-comparisons. Here we get another image of doubling. Macduff seems to mirror the Thane of Cawdor, and so these self-comparisons give a sense that they are equally matched 
point against point and arm against arm. The rebellious arm is presumably that of Cawdor, echoing again the description of MacDonald as a rebel earlier in this scene. Macduff curbs his lavish or wild, out-of-control spirit, and, to conclude, the king's forces win. Macduff is described as Bellona's bridegroom, lapped in proof. Bellona was the ancient Roman goddess of war, and so her groom would need to be a mighty warrior himself. He's also lapped in proof. He's clad in powerful armour that is proof against the enemy's weapons. Now, I appreciate that some listeners might be scratching their heads at this point, since it would be easy to assume that this shocking description is a further account of Macbeth's successes on the battlefield. But I just don't think that makes sense, especially since in the next scene, Macbeth has no knowledge of the Thane of Cawdor's treachery, or his death. There are occasional inconsistencies in Shakespeare, but why, why would he write so vivid a description of a fight in one scene and then have its hero have no knowledge of it in the scene immediately following? I think it makes for much more interesting stagecraft if we see Duncan receiving information from different areas of the front and from different entrances on stage. So the captain brings the news of Macbeth defeating Macdonald, and Ross brings the news, very pointedly from Fife, of Macduff's success against Cawdor. Staged as such, we get a story. Now there are two worthy warriors who have done the state some service. Now we start to have some more interesting doubling. Macbeth and Macduff, both fighting for their king. And speaking of the king, he concludes Ross's line with delight as he cries, The victory fell on us. Great happiness. Now Ross hasn't quite finished, and he continues, That now Sweno, the Norway's king, craves composition. Nor would we deign him burial of his men till he dispersed at St. Column's Inch ten thousand dollars to our general use. Macduff made such a mess of the Norwegian horde that now their king, Sweno, craves composition. He's asking for a peace treaty. It's a huge success for Scotland. But the Scots are tough. They refuse to let the Norwegians bury their dead until they pay a ransom. And Macduff charges them $10,000 for this, which is a vast sum of money. The agreement is for the mass burial to take place on Inchcombe, or St. Columns Inch, a small island in the Firth of Forth. It was common practice to bury the dead on islands because on the mainland there was a consistent fear that wolves or wild dogs might dig up the dead and desecrate their bodies. So Macduff has done wisely. He's had a resounding victory in battle, an agreement for the respectful burial of the dead and a major financial gain for the country. The king is still furious thinking of the betrayal of the Thane of Cawdor, however, and so he says, No more that thane of Cawdor shall deceive our bosom interest. Go pronounce his present death, and with his former title greet Macbeth. That thane of Cawdor will have no more access to the king's inner circle or his bosom interest. The king makes a proclamation. Cawdor is to be executed immediately. Go pronounce his present death, he says. And he decides to give his title to Macbeth. If it's played that Macbeth defeated Cawdor after his grisly defeat of Macdonald, this also works just fine. But isn't it more interesting to think of it as a choice between two? 
Duncan here chooses to give the plush reward to Macbeth, who won't be expecting it at all. And perhaps this will be the worst mistake Duncan ever makes. Ross, our professional messenger, agrees to deliver the news. I'll see it done, he says. Duncan ends the scene with one of the most perfect lines of Shakespeare. What he hath lost, noble Macbeth hath won. This little line ends the scene with a rhyme. It is a very metrical line of iambic pentameter with a clever switch in the rhythm so that noble Macbeth really stands out. It has a very neat antithesis within it, lost and won. And it has considerable dramatic irony since Duncan still justifiably thinks that Macbeth is the good guy. It's so simple, it's so short, but it's absolutely perfect. Already we have reached the end of Act 1, Scene 2. It's a really dynamic start to the play. Now, the next scene is a little longer, but we'll get right to it next week. I hope you're enjoying this new adventure as much as I am, and please don't forget to check out the website, thehamletpodcast.com, for plenty of show notes and extra information. If you're subscribed to the podcast on whatever platform you like to use, you will be notified whenever a new episode comes online. But rest assured, they'll be with you every Sunday. Thanks a million for listening. It's great to have your company. And I'll be back next week to start Act 1, Scene 3.